Hey guys, this is Cobain. Today what I want to do is talk about the idea that the four faces of the cherubim have a special correspondence with the Gospels as composed by the four evangelists. Before getting into the main subject of the video, I want to mention, as usual, that if you have not yet become a patron, I would encourage you to consider doing so. If you enjoy this content on a regular basis, are financially stable, and believe it's important for this content to continue to be produced on a regular basis for a general audience. Information is in the description box, but at the top level of patronage, which is $20 and up, you are guaranteed at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion on theological questions, basically whatever you would, you'd would you like to talk about as long as I have something that I think might be useful uh, to say. Uh, so let's begin with a prayer and then we will get into the main subject of the video. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy fathers from everlasting, and thine only good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. So the four faces of the cherubim refer to the structure of this chariot structure that we meet in the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, we have a prophecy which is written about Israel as it enters into its exile. We have a prophecy which is written specifically to and in the context of a community of exiles over which Ezekiel is constituted as the prophetic head by the Holy Spirit. And the narrative of his prophetic calling begins the story of the book, but it also tells us a great deal about what it means to be a prophet and what it will mean for the eschatological renewal of Israel to come in time. So the central crisis of this period is that Israel in idolatry, both in crude idolatry, the worshiping of other gods, but also in taking as their ultimate good that which was not the God of Israel, as manifested in worshiping God in a way which he had not permitted. Uh, this had led to a situation where the temple, the sanctuary, was defiled. In biblical parlance, the abomination of desolation, or more accurately, the detestable thing of desolation, is something that is committed by those who are entrusted with authority over the sanctuary. For example, in the time of the prophet Samuel, it was the sons of Eli who committed the equivalent abomination or detestable thing of desolation by sleeping with the women who were consecrated to perpetual virginity at the tabernacle and stealing the sacrificial portion of what was offered to God, that portion which was meant to be exclusively offered to the God of Israel. This led to a situation in which God departed the tabernacle, and it is only in departing the tabernacle that it becomes vulnerable to attack and capture. This is an important point because it helps us to explain how Isaiah and the other prophets are in perfect concord. Isaiah repeatedly emphasizes that you that the Gentiles are not able to penetrate Jerusalem because God dwells therein. And some have asked the question, well, how can it be that the temple's destruction is prophesied later in the book? And so they invent all sorts of fancy source critical ideas. But the reality is that preceding the destruction of the temple and the sacking of the city is the departure of the God of Israel from his appointed dwelling place in the inner sanctuary of the temple. And so we see in the book of Ezekiel that the God of Israel departs the holy temple and he goes and he dwells with the exiles. He doesn't dwell with them in the same sense that he perhaps dwelt in the temple, but this is an important movement in history because what we will find is that the people of Israel from this point forward are going to be described as the four winds of heaven. For example, in Daniel 7, it is the winds of heaven which stir up the Gentile sea and cause a sequence of four empires to rise up from the Gentile sea. In Zechariah, we read that Israel has been spread as the four winds 
of heaven. And the reason that this language is being used is because the presence of God is described as wind. The presence of God is the spirit of God. And so we read throughout the book of Ezekiel that the spirit of God grabs the prophet, it lifts him up, it carries him from place to place. And indeed, the spirit of God dwells in Ezekiel so that his own behavior and life comes to mirror the chariot which we encounter at the beginning of the book. Moreover, if we examine closely the structure of that chariot which is encountered by Ezekiel and which is also seen in the vision of God's departure from the temple, what we find is that this is simply a reoriented form of the throne upon which God sits in the inner sanctuary of the temple. So the four cherubim in the temple there are two cherubim on either side of Israel's God, then there are two cherubim which undergird the throne. The form is turned right side up so that they form essentially the equivalent to the horsemen upon which the chariot rides. And on the throne, we meet one who is called God in the likeness of a man. And this is a significant phrase which resembles, not accidentally, the prophecy of the one like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7. And this is because Ezekiel and Daniel are written at about the same time. They read each other's work. In addition to the entire canonical book being published, presumably these individual prophecies were also being published and circulated. And Ezekiel actually mentions Daniel as an historical figure as one of the three most righteous men who ever lived. Uh, that's Noah, Job, and Daniel. This causes all sorts of problems for those who wish to argue that Daniel is a much later book. Um, I won't go into the unbelievable silliness that gets said about this passage in Ezekiel. Needless to say, it's, it's not true. Ezekiel was referring to exactly who everyone has always thought he's referring to, namely Daniel, because he calls him Daniel. So that's the basic context for the book. And the significance of the identity of the one enthroned on this chariot and the one who will be identified as one like a son of man, uh, there are many levels to it. First of all, we meet the high priest as someone who is the high priest because he is an imprint or a reflection of that eternal reality which the Logos possesses from the Father. So in Daniel chapter 7, when we read about one like a son of man, the one like a son of man is ascending on the clouds of heaven. There are many other ways to demonstrate this, but what's going on here is we are reading about a vision of a heavenly day of atonement. Because it's on the day of atonement that the high priest, embodying the whole nation on his shoulders, he wears the nation on his breastplate and also bears the sons of Israel on his shoulders, he ascends twice, once for himself and once for the nation as a whole. And in both of these ascents, he carries with him a censer by which he uh, sends the smoke of incense all about him. So as he's moving up towards the throne of God, remember in the structure of the tabernacle, inward always represents upward. As he moves up to the throne of God, he is moving upwards on a cloud of incense. This helps explain why in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is interpreted as the representation of the saints of the Most High possessing the kingdom of God. Well, it's because the high priest, identified as the one like a son of Adam, the high priest goes on behalf of the whole nation. He goes once for himself, once for the nation as a whole. So in the New Testament, we find Jesus, uh, he ascends before the throne of his father in Revelation 4 to 5, and then he carries the saints up with him in Revelation chapter 20. And all of this continues a story that began in the Gospel of John, where he says, I have not yet ascended to my Father. He says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. I will take you to where I am. Um, there are many uh, uh, threads which are resolved in this double ascent of the high priest. Now, Ezekiel himself is described as a kind of high priestly figure. For example, when Ezekiel's wife dies, this is seen as a symbol of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in the same year. 
And the logic of this is that the high priest is an image of God. As an image of God, he is bridegroom to the nation. The nation's bridal character is embodied specifically in the city. So we read about Zion as a daughter and a bride. In the book of Revelation, it is the New Jerusalem or the church, which is described as the bride of God. And because of this network of correspondences, Ezekiel's bride represents the city of Jerusalem when and only when we recognize that Ezekiel himself is functioning as a kind of high priest in exile. Because when his wife dies and Jerusalem is destroyed, Ezekiel is not allowed to ritually mourn his bride. Now this doesn't mean that he couldn't weep, it just meant he couldn't go through the official ritual process by which a person would mourn. And the reason for this is because a high priest is at an elevated degree of consecration, of sanctity. It, the high priest is elevated to a particular intimacy with the presence of God. And the presence of God is utterly incompatible with the presence of death. This is why it is so dangerous for human beings in whom the sickness of death persists to encounter the presence of God in the Old Testament. And it is why in the New Testament we don't die when we encounter the Eucharist because the incarnate word has taken on our mortal flesh and has died our death so that we can approach God safely even bearing the contagion of death. Indeed, in the New Testament, when someone who is ritually unclean touches Jesus, the embodied presence of Israel's God, Jesus' purity flows out and makes them clean, rather than their uncleanness touching that which was clean and making it unclean. We see in the Old Testament that according to the logic of the ritual system, it is very difficult for cleanness, for life, without the presence of death marring it, to get a foothold in creation. But when God lands and takes into himself a human body and soul from the flesh and blood and bone of Adam, suddenly life has much more than a foothold. It uses the very roads which once communicated the dominion of death to overcome death and conquer it in the name of life. Now Ezekiel takes on this specific vocation through his infilling with the Holy Spirit and through his infilling with the Holy Spirit he becomes one who is called the son of man or the son of Adam. That is why Daniel 7 the one like a son of man has such a close relationship with so many of these texts in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel has called this in the immediate context of God sitting on his throne in the likeness of a man riding out to meet him and filling him with the very spirit which animates the wheels which guide the chariot to and fro. Now we find that this chariot moves in a very specific way. It moves with an exactitude of right angles that manifest the perfection of God's character and is imprinted in the very precise measurements which are always required in the building of the Holy Temple. Ezekiel throughout the book is going to mirror this very pattern of activity, so this helps elucidate and unfold what is meant throughout the Old Testament when God speaks of us walking before him or walking after him. As Gregory of Nyssa says in relation to Exodus 33-34, to uh, Moses discovers that to know the presence of God means to walk behind his back, that is to follow him, and indeed uh, the language halakha that is the nature of the divine instruction, the interpretation and application of that divine Torah or instruction. Halakha comes from the word meaning to walk, halak. So all of this stuff rolls together in a really nice way. But in Ezekiel 1.10, we get to the four faces of the cherubim as they are conventionally called. But it's not as simple as that. Ezekiel 1.10 says this, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, the four had the face of an eagle. So we see that each face belongs to all four of these beings. Moreover, we see that these three animal faces are not described as three out of four faces, the fourth of which is the human face, but rather each of them has a human face, and then 
one of each has uh, an individual animal face. Now, the reason for this is because the animal creation captures different aspects of God's creative intent for the world, but the human being, in being the image of the one through whom the entire world was born, the human being sums up the natures of all things in his own nature, and that is why he is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to exercise dominion over all creation because he sums it all up in his own mind, and that is why Jesus assumes the nature of a human being rather than, say, an ox, a lion, or an eagle. But this also helps elucidate the nature of what it means for the creation to be the creation. The creation is, in one way, a dwelling place or a throne of God. God rests upon his throne. We read throughout the scriptures that a king, having conquered what he meant to conquer, will take his rest. And this rest is taken specifically on a throne. But a temple is simply a palace for God. And God's throne is, uh, receives the presence of God as the fulfillment of its rest. And what it means for God to conquer the world is for him to realize his divine intention in the world. So the language of conquest is consistently used with respect to God's creative transfiguration of the world. Moreover, God cooperatively brings the world under his dominion by being present in his image, that is the human family, and bringing the human being to really cooperate and determine the mode in which the creation is conquered and transfigured. We've talked before about how these are really two aspects of a single family of concepts. So the key thing in looking at the animal faces here is in noting that these three animal faces each capture a distinct aspect of God's created order. And all of them are summed up in humanity, which is specified in the human face. Now, there are other texts in the scriptures which describe these this fourfold pattern somewhat differently. In Revelation, there are the four living creatures, and it seems to be much more distinct fourfold thing. You don't have this relationship where the human face uh, is included in all three of the other faces. So this fourfold pattern is what's really important for the evangelists because Jesus, as the Logos, is the archetype after which the whole creation is born, and because man is the microcosm of creation, Jesus is the archetype for the perfect and glorified man. And because what it means to be a perfect and glorified man is to rule over the world as God's vice regent, Jesus is the one who opens the path for us to do exactly that. Philippians 3.20-21 says that uh, the body of our lowliness is transfigured after the pattern of the body of his glory by the power in which he subjects all things to himself. And so we have quotations combined from Psalm 8, which speaks of man being crowned with glory and honor, and Psalm 110, which speaks of the, uh, the Messiah, the son of David, being seated at the right hand of God so that all nations are subdued under his feet and are made his footstool. And of course, the language of footstool is sacramental language. The footstool is the dwelling place of God. As God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool in Isaiah uh, 66. Now, there have been different articulations of which gospel matches which face of the cherubim in church history. And I myself, for quite some time, identified them in the following order. I said Matthew corresponds to the ox because it corresponds to the priestly period of Israel's history, the Mosaic period. Mark corresponds to the lion as it corresponds to the Davidic period. Luke corresponds to the eagle, it corresponds to the prophetic period. And John is the man, it sums up all things, it's the eschatological representation of Jesus as the summation of the entire history of the Old Testament. And I would say these days that I don't think that that is a sufficient understanding of the unique significance that the four cherubim faces have in relation to the Gospels. Because there are different kinds of correspondence which symbols have 
in the scriptures. So if you take these four dimensions of the created order and you associate them with four distinct periods in God's glorification of the world, that is, the pattern by which God grows the world up from one degree of glory to another, then indeed the priestly or mosaic period of history, that corresponds to the ox, the kingly corresponds to the lion, the prophetic corresponds to the eagle, and then man sums up everything which has come before. Nevertheless, it seems to me that when it would be a mistake to assume that that kind of correspondence between the four faces of the cherubim and the four stages in God's um, developmental history of the world, and he layers these on each other over and over again, so it's an upward spiral and you recycle through all of these stages again and again and again. And in fact, I think priestly, kingly, prophetic corresponds very neatly with purification, illumination, uh, theosis, or, or deification. But instead of just considering the four faces of the cherubim as being a way of restating the four distinct periods of God's pattern of the world's development, I think we should consider the possibility that the four faces of the cherubim can also be taken in a different and complementary way in relation to the Gospels. Namely, they capture four different aspects of God's creative sustenance of the world, four different accents in which the gospel of Jesus is enunciated. You have the gospel which enunciates the reality of Jesus as the glorified man to whom is given dominion at last. You've got the gospel as it specifies Jesus as the kingly conquering lion who goes from place to place rapidly, energetically, doing mighty works. Um, terrifying the devils into submission. You have the gospel as it is enunciated as the fulfillment of Israel's sacrificial system and the holy temple. And then you have the gospel as the fulfillment of the unifying principle of heaven and earth. And this is the fourfold pattern which I would really get behind today. And what really kept me dissatisfied with my earlier articulation of the relationship is the fact that it's not that we have multiple specifications of the cherubim face gospel relationship in church history, but there's one specific understanding of that relationship which seems to have been given a canonical form in the fact that wherever we have an iconographic depiction of each evangelist associated with a specific cherubim face. It is always Matthew's gospel is linked with the man, Mark's gospel is linked with the lion, Luke's gospel is linked with the eagle, and or Luke's gospel is linked with the ox, and John's gospel is linked with the eagle. And I just would was not satisfied with saying, well, you know, we made a mistake, maybe we should do it differently. Uh, that wasn't a place I was willing to go. I mean, Anyway, so, so it's just an example of, you know, tradition, um, you know, if it turned out that that wasn't the exact right pattern of correspondence, it wouldn't be the end of the world, but I felt that it was, a, it was reason to keep thinking through and seeing if there was a better way of talking about the relationship between the cherubim faces and the gospels. So let me give you my understanding of why I think each face of the cherubim corresponds with each of the four Gospels as we have it. And the only thing in common between this understanding, which is the one we have in all our iconography, um, the one that is pretty much ubiquitous from the uh, fourth century onwards, um, and the my preceding understanding is that my preceding understanding had Mark as the lion. Now, just to make clear, I do think that the ox, lion, eagle, man order is the way you understand the order of God's redemptive and glorifying work and the way that each cherubim face corresponds to his redemptive and glorifying work. And each of the four Gospels corresponds in order to God's pattern of redemptive and glorifying work. So Matthew really does correspond with the Mosaic period. Mark really does correspond with the Davidic period. Luke really does correspond with the prophetic period. John really does sum it all up as the New Testament within the New Testament. But there's a different aspect or feature to the symbolism of the cherubim. And another advantage to this way of understanding 
the correspondence is that the first biblical uh, description of the four faces is in the passage I read earlier, Ezekiel 1 verse 10, and it describes in order man, lion, ox, and eagle, which is the order we have in the four gospels. So why take Matthew as having any peculiar correspondence with the man? Well, as we've talked about before, Matthew is the beginning of the New Testament, and I think the apostles understood very consciously that they were producing a new set of canonical books to go along with the dramatic turn in God's redemptive history in Israel and the nations. It was always recognized that whenever God acts in a decisive way, it would co correspond with a flurry of scriptural production. This whole idea that the Old Testament canon is a development of the late first millennium, there's no evidence for it. All of the evidence that we have, all of the actual descriptions of how certain books came to be considered canonical in the Hebrew Bible and other books came to be considered non-canonical, describe Moses and the prophets writing their books and depositing them in the Ark of the Covenant and the temple. That is, they were written as canonical books. Those edits were made, were made un, uh, by prophets who had the authority to add certain prophetic notations who actually had access to the texts which were deposited in the temple and that's what the fathers say as well john of damascus says it philard of moscow says it um, and the new testament the temple is the church and the apostles entrust the books of the new testament to the liturgical transmission of the church uh, so I think Matthew is very conscious of picking up where the Hebrew Bible left off. Uh, the Hebrew Bible ends, the Tanakh ends in Chronicles. Uh, Tanakh, Torah, Prophets, Writings, Jesus Speaks, of Moses, the Prophets, the Psalms, which is the head book of the Writings. Sirach speaks of a tripartite biblical division, as does Josephus. So the last book of the Old Testament, or the, the Tanakh, is Chronicles. Chronicles begins with a series of genealogies, Adam, and it ends with Cyrus the Great giving his decree to return from Babylon. He says, whoever has the Lord his God with him, let him go up and build the house of the Lord. Now the fact that the text ends, and thus the Tanakh ends on this note, points us to the fact that the real fulfillment and completion of this request and injunction comes in the Messiah. Because this little phrase, the Lord his God is with him, that is a very close echo of something which has happened earlier in the book of Chronicles. I believe the chapter is 1 Chronicles chapter 17, the Davidic covenant, where God says to David, I will be with you specifically to build the house. And that is what Cyrus is enjoining here at the end of Chronicles. Moreover, we find that Cyrus has been given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth by the Lord, the God of heaven. Well, Adam is the one who is first made Lord of creation. And now Cyrus wraps up a book which begins with Adam. So we have both an open-ended thread and a correspondence between the first character and the last character who are identified uh, in the book. Moreover, let him go up, that phrase is uh, very closely uh, resembling the end of the book of Genesis, where Joseph prophesies the Exodus. He speaks of it as going up from the land of Egypt, and he commands his descendants to carry up his bones when they go up from the land of Egypt. This is resurrection language. Hosea, in speaking of the gathering of Israel, the true restoration from exile, the new exodus. He speaks of Israel as rising from the ground. And so Jesus is the personal embodiment of Israel. Jesus is placed in the ground and then he rises from the dead, thus fulfilling the circumcision of the heart through the gift of the spirit and enabling the human family to become obedient from the heart, allowing all of the prophetic promises of the Deuteronom uh, Deuteronomic blessings to actually come to pass. So Matthew begins the same way that Chronicles begins. It begins with a genealogy. Matthew begins with 
this little phrase, the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew begins the New Testament, and it alludes to the very beginning of the Old Testament, just as it alludes to the very beginning of the last book of the Old Testament. You have a genealogy, and then you have a description of the birth of the one who fulfills the prophecy, God with us. And you have thus a reference to the end of Chronicles, where Cyrus invites the one whose Lord his God is with him to fulfill the call to build the house of the Lord. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the major theme is going to be how this figure unites um, unites the heavenly temple, the presence of God above, with the earth. And thus, the last chapter of Matthew, the very last thing we read about from the Gospel of Matthew, is Jesus standing on a mountain, calling the apostles to go and baptize all nations, bring them into the sanctified presence of God. That's kind of a different thread, so I don't want to spend much time on it. What I want to call your attention to right now is how, first, the genealogical significance of Jesus at the end of Matthew's genealogy, taken in relation to the beginning of Chronicles genealogy being Adam, points to Jesus as the true and last Adam. More directly in relation to that theme, you have the narrative of the star rising and guiding the Magi, and this narrative is a callback to Numbers 24, where we read about a star who rises up from Jacob. And it's in this passage, in this specific messianic prophecy, that we are told in the very this very context, one from Jacob will have dominion. And that word dominion is not a typical word, it's an unusual word, and it alludes back to Genesis chapter 1. One from Jacob shall have dominion over the nations. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of that vocation which was given to Adam in the beginning. And so he brings about the conquest of the world as Adam was supposed to bring about the conquest of the world. Remembering that conquest does not contain within itself the necessity of force. Conquest is a particular aspect of a broader category of ideas which includes and in fact is more centrally focused upon the shaping of the world the glorification of the world by human exercise of dominion by which it increases in value warfare is simply the temporary form that this takes in relation to human rebellion and it will in time be eradicated as Isaiah speaks. Uh, Isaiah 2, swords and spears are not destroyed, but they're turned into agricultural tools by which the world is molded, harvested, and increased in value and consecrated as Eucharist to God. Most significantly, significantly and directly in relation to this theme of Jesus as the one who receives the authority promised to Adam in the beginning, the Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus on this mountain saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That is the basis upon which he says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is a double echo back to the end of Chronicles, where Cyrus says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me uh, authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. It is an echo back to Daniel chapter 7, where you have a son of Adam figure who is given authority to rule over all the nations. And through that, it is an echo back to Genesis chapter 1, where Adam is given dominion over the creation, but he is then told in this context to go and subdue the earth, meaning to transfigure, to glorify, to mold it, to increase it in its value, and to draw it more and more perfectly in alignment with its heavenly prototype. And you see, this is precisely what happens here, because Jesus receives authority, but the authority he receives is not only the authority over the earth, it's also authority over the heavens. And this is the basis upon which he enjoins the apostles to go subdue the earth to, by making disciples of all nations. So this is the dominion which was promised to man in the beginning. That is what sets man apart from the rest of the creatures. And that is what makes man unique in relation to 
and for the benefit of all creatures. So what about the Gospel of Mark? One of the things which strikes me about the uh, Gospel of Mark, and I'm hardly the first person to be struck by this, is the speed at which the narrative moves and the hidden power which seems to be reflected in the movement of Jesus. So it begins, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now this little phrase, Son of God, it of course has great significance as a revelation of Jesus as the incarnate only begotten Son, but we should recognize that Son of God is a royal title. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. That's what is said in Psalm 2 about the king from the line of David. Uh, we are told in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be to him, that is the royal seed, a father, he shall be to me a son. And indeed, around the world, the emperor, or the king, is understood to be the son of the supreme creator God, because the creator God has, by virtue of his creating the world, sovereignty over it. The buck stops with him. He determines how everything is going to be, because he's the one who invented it in the first place. He made it to be, so he gets to decide how it is going to be. So that's why creation and sovereignty are so closely tied together. And you receive authority you receive your inheritance from the one whom you were born from and Jesus being called the Messiah the Son of God is being identified specifically in his royal capacity now a king throughout the scriptures can be understood according to two distinct aspects the first is the conquering king and the second is the reigning king conquering king is the one who is acquiring that which he will have under his feet during the period of his reign. And these two things overlap and are interior to one another. So in one respect, they are sequential. In another respect, they're simultaneous. Um, but uh, the conquering king is one who is promised authority over, let's say, a specific land, but they are still in the process of coming into possession of it. So Israel is described as having the shout of a king among them in Numbers 23. Reason being, they have begun or are about to begin the conquest of the land of Canaan. And it is said that they come into their rest as those who have received dominion by having subdued, that's the word used, echoing Genesis 1, J Joshua chapter 18, the land of Canaan, they come into their rest after they have conquered it. Likewise, King David, uh, before he, the covenant is made with him, he subdues the nations round about. The great sin of Israel was in seeking a king before they had conquered the land which God had given to them. It was a failure of faith on their part. They failed to trust that God was sufficient to conquer their enemies. And so a king, instead of becoming a gift to crown a mature nation, became partially a gift, but partially an idol whom they trusted in, in contrast to and instead of the God of Israel. But we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is especially focused on as a conqueror. The king in his conquering mission must move with great speed he moves from place to place always working to stay one step ahead of the game jesus he after his baptism he goes into the wilderness we have a very swift narrative of his coming into the wilderness coming out of the wilderness uh, and again, we have this word immediately, immediately, immediately. Mark is very well known for saying Jesus did this and that and the other immediately. And then in Mark uh, 1, 21 and following, we have this dramatic narrative of the expulsion of the devil from the man in the synagogue in uh, Capernaum, Mark 1, 23. Immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying aloud, or crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed as they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. 
you can see the way that his authority is linked up specifically in Mark with his successful ministry of exorcism. He has authority over the devils and because he has exemplified this cosmic authority, he has the authority to teach. And right after this, uh, we're told immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. It's really interesting if you ever go to Capernaum. I, I, I went to Capernaum and I went to the, the place where the synagogue was, and it was unbelievable. You walk right out of it, and right there is the house of Peter. And it, it, it's, it, suddenly the narrative in the gospel makes so much sense. Oh, of course Jesus went right into the house of Peter because it was right next to the synagogue. Um, but we're told that Jesus took her by the hand and lifted her up. So this theme of the hand is a major image when speaking about kingship. The arm and the hand, this is the instrument of power that is used to identify a king. So Pharaoh describes what he's going to do with his arm. God describes what he's going to do against Pharaoh by his mighty arm so that God is manifest as king of all the earth. This is a major theme throughout Mark's gospel in particular. We could go through the whole gospel and look at those aspects, but... I'll just jump to the very end of it uh, in view of our discussion with James Snap about the authenticity of the end of Mark's gospel. I'm going to take for granted that the ending of Mark was indeed originally part of the text. Uh, so Mark 16, uh, 19, uh, actually I'll, I'll say Mark 16, uh, 17, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. They will, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. So we see the theme of the hand here. We see the theme of the conquest of devils. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now this is a quotation from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which is simultaneously royal terminology because sit on a throne at my right hand and it is also temple terminology because a footstool well that is the ark of the covenant in relation to god's feet so it's interesting the way that these two things interrelate to one another so this is mark's gospel in relation to the king the lion the one whose word has authority and power over the devils jesus comes onto the scene suddenly blasts out of nowhere and roars his, uh, roars his voice from Zion and thereby conquers the devils. Uh, Luke's gospel corresponds in the traditional association to the ox and the reason for this is quite obvious because the ox is the preeminent sacrificial animal. So the ox is the animal which you would sacrifice if you were a priest. The oxen specifically have a reference to the priesthood. There are other sacrificial animals in Israel's system. There are five of them, but the ox kind of sums up the whole system. It's the first uh, offering which is actually described in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1 describes three distinct ascension offerings, usually rendered um, whole burnt offering, but it means ascension offering, and it begins by describing a son of the uh, a son of the herd, mentioning almost immediately thereafter a son from the flock but the preeminent offering the one that's first mentioned here and the one that will thus come to symbolize the sacrificial system in general is going to be the ox so in luke's gospel uh, this whole theme is very very explicit we begin with the narrative of zachariah serving in the temple according to the custom of the priesthood he receives a revelation of john the baptist's birth while he is serving in the temple. John the Baptist himself is consecrated to a kind of uh, temple service outside of the temple. He's not allowed to drink wine or strong drink his entire life. The Nazarite vow is a temporary priestly vow, but there are certain people who are called by divine will to be permanent Nazarites. It's, a lot of people don't recognize that most Nazarites were not like Samson or John the Baptist. They were You could take a Nazarite vow temporarily, but uh, John the Baptist is called to take a permanent Nazarite vow. Uh, we then encounter the Virgin Mary, who, by tradition, and I think there's evidence for this in Luke itself, 
uh, is associated with the temple. She grows up in the temple. Uh, she makes a vow in relation to the temple. Her vow, uh, her, her response to the angel Gabriel does not seem to make much sense if she expects to have normal marital relations with Joseph because she says, how am I going to conceive and bear the son because I know no man? Now, this question doesn't make any sense if she expects to have normal relations in a very brief period of time because they were already betrothed, they were already going to get married. So what's the sense in asking, how am I going to have this child if you already know you're going to get married within the year? Like if you receive a word from God that you are going to have a son within the next two years and you know that you're going to get married in the next three months, your first inference is not a virgin birth. It's not even a confusing question. Moreover, in relation to the temple theme, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit over the Virgin Mary anticipates the temple language that will be used of the church in the book of Acts in a setting which is right beside the temple. Book of Acts is a special emphasis on the church in relation to temples, both the temple of Jerusalem and also the temple of pagan gods like Artemis and the church is superior to both of those, though in different uh, ways. And Luke's gospel, from beginning to end, is going to have this attention paid to the temple of the Lord. Uh, Luke ends with the apostles uh, returning to the temple, blessing God. Jesus, before ascending to heaven, lifts his hands and blesses them. And uh, this is the form of the Aaronic or priestly blessing. So throughout Luke, we clearly have this idea of the centrality of the sanctuary of the temple, which is again accentuated in the book of Acts. As I've said, you could go through the whole each of these gospels and look at all of them according to these distinctive themes. But given the association of the ox with the sacrificial system and the association of Luke with the temple. This is a pretty good correspondence. And finally, John is taken to be linked with the eagle. And the eagle is associated with the prophetic animal. In Ezekiel, the spirit of God who blows from place to place, grabs hold of the prophet, lifts him up, moves him, from place to place. Ezekiel's pattern of movement imitates God's own patterns of movement because the Spirit animates the chariot. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the one who is born of the Spirit blows where he wishes. And throughout John, Jesus himself is going to be the preeminent figure who is born of the Spirit. Actually, the language that is used in the prologue of John, I think, makes reference to Jesus' miraculous conception uh, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And when it refers to the children of God being born not of the will of the flesh, nor of man, nor of blood, but of God, this is a early Christian and apostolic reflection on the theological importance of the virgin birth, of the virgin birth as significant because Jesus is born by his own operation and power of willing. So it's not the union of bridegroom and bride which brings him into the world. He freely enters into the world. And we are conformed to the likeness and perfection of his sonship according to the free cooperation of our will. And this is one way in which we become more and more fully like God in that our existence becomes more and more fully coordinate, if that's the right word, with our power of willing, animated, enabled, empowered by the Spirit, while we still retain the genuine freedom to choose among various goods. The notion of the eagle is important as it relates to the idea of flight and as that relates to the notion of the Holy Spirit. But the eagle, these kinds of birds are called in Revelation, I believe it's Revelation chapter 18, the birds that fly in mid-heaven. Uh, the eagle cries out, whoa, 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 I think it's there that it's called the bird flies in mid-heaven. In other words, it is at the mediating point between the heavens and the earth, 
And this is the major theme, one might say, of John's Gospel. And you have Jesus speaking of Nathaniel seeing angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the Son of Adam. This is a reference back to the ladder to heaven, which Jacob encounters on his way to be persecuted by Laban. And when Jacob returns from that trial, God wrestles him, thereby revealing that it was always God who was causing him to suffer not for its own sake, but so that he could be matured and become the person whom God needed him to be or wished him to be for the sake of his family and for the sake, indeed, of the whole world. So when he comes out of that, he encounters another well, just like a well marks the beginning of his travels. Well, this other well is associated with this place called Sukkoth, or clouds. Jacob has ascended the ladder of suffering and has come above the clouds of heaven. Well, Jesus himself will be that very ladder. We are told throughout the gospel that Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Jesus will ascend to his Father through the cross of suffering, not only in his Passion Week, but in being unjustly persecuted throughout his life. Jesus is the one who mediates between heaven and earth, telling Nathaniel of heavenly things and enabling him to understand those heavenly things through the Spirit. But the central theme here is Jesus' ladder to heaven by the cross, which is that ladder. And then in the book of Revelation, we will complete that narrative as you see Jesus ascend as the seven-eyed lamb, seven eyes, seven eyes of the high priest, Zechariah 3, referring to the seven engravings on the crown of the high priest, meaning holy to the Lord. Uh, the narrative of Jesus' ascension, which is promised at the end of John, but not completed, that is completed in Revelation in this visionary form. Uh, and then you have the church being brought up through the ladder of suffering, through the ladder of the cross in the rest of the book. So you have the harvest of bread and wine, which is placed on God's heavenly altar. And that becomes the Eucharist, which is then sprinkled on the world. That's, that's a topic perhaps for another day. Um, but this is the central idea of John as uh, Jesus, as he who binds together heaven and earth, he who ascends to the heaven. I must go to my Father so that I can send the Spirit, so that the Spirit can take you to myself. And then so that in Revelation, those who are taken to Jesus in his heavenly court, then work through their participation in his reign over the world, to continue perpetuating that until heaven and earth are totally stitched together. So uh, this is actually something which I've, uh, uh, th these kinds of sets of associations are something I've only recently really been pursuing in earnest. So as you could probably notice, um, it's not as well developed as I'd like it to be. Uh, but I do think that um, it's a more canonically grounded understanding of the four cherubim faces given our iconographic tradition um, as having these associations than perhaps the one that I uh, earlier suggested. So uh, I hope you got something useful out of that. If you have any additional thoughts, I would really appreciate those. Please remember me in your prayers. Uh, and I, God willing, will talk to you again soon.